very much for the introduction, Natasha, and welcome to Tibet. Um, before I start, I would be curious to know, is any of you going to the, the trip in October, Laos, Yunnan, and Tibet? Anybody in this room?
um, Bohm, after Buddhism had arrived in Tibet, Bohm absorbed a lot of elements from Buddhism. Um, if you nowadays go to a Bohm monastery, you will hardly see the difference. You will see monks in red robes, they look exactly like Tibetan Buddhist monks, um, but certain rituals are different, the deities are different, and especially the self-understanding is totally different, the lineages. The Bohm will say, our founder lived long before the lifetime of Buddha Shakyamuni, so our religion is older. Um, so they would clearly draw a borderline between themselves and the Buddhists in Tibet. And then finally, we have something that I have here called the nameless religion. And the nameless religion comprises elements of yeah, religious practice, ritual, worldviews that you find across the Himalayan countries and that are not specifically part of any official religion. And that's, for instance, ideas that all of us have a life cell and if you're very unlucky, the life cell can leave the body and go elsewhere and then you will be ill and need to be healed and you need someone who can fall into a trance and see that the life cell lays and bring it back. <laughs> or it is ideas about the structure of the cosmos in general, belief and spirit of the land, of the mountains. Uh, but these are ideas that find across the Himalayas and that are not specifically Buddhist or Um A very important element of this nameless religion are the mountain gods. If you think of the Tibetan plateau, obviously the Himalayas are the dominant feature. And also when you travel in the landscape of the Tibetan Plateau, you always have a very wide view and you see the mountains. You see the clouds moving over the landscapes and the shadows of the clouds. You see the rivers and you follow the rivers. So you, you are very strongly placed in the land, uh, much more than we are here, I think. Also, the climate is not easy. The Tibetan Plateau is very arid. The climate is always a bit unpredictable. You can always have flash floods in summer, you can have blizzards. So um, it is not an easy place to live in. And I think this combination of being in this really overpowering, oppressive landscape, but also living under very difficult conditions, makes people look for protection and gods. And they see these gods in the mountains. So Tibet has a number of mountain gods. Some are trans-regional, very famous, like, like Mount Kailash in the west. Others are much more localized and more responsible for specific villages or communities. Um, so mountain gods are important. Uh, mountain gods are basically treated like kings, like rulers. And they are also known as the Yulbah, the, the Fatah of the Yulbah, the lords of the territory. And so you would treat them like king. You would praise the mountain god, you would make offerings to the mountain god, and in return, you expect that the mountain god will protect you. Because that's what a good king has to do. I think what underlies this nameless religion or transhumanian, unhumanian religion um, are two principles. And one is the principle of a layered structure of the world, verticality, with layers, 
On the other one is the idea of centrality, concentric circles around the center, and an axis in the middle that connects the most. And we will see in a second what it looks like. So first of all, if you have Tibetan texts, you will very often find lists that describe the world we live in. And they start above. They start always with the sky. They talk about the blue sky above, the white peaks of the mountains, the gray slate, they usually say, the stone of the rocks, the golden meadows, the turquoise river. So you have these layers of the world associated with different colors, sometimes also with different animals. And basically, there are three main layers in the world and that is heaven, where the gods live. They're associated with the color white. Then there is earth, where we live, so human beings, animals, but also spirits, mountain gods, spirits of the land. And they are associated with yellow and red. And then there is an underworld, where you have serpent spirits, very powerful creatures and they are associated with the color blue. These layers, these three layers, are mirrored on a smaller scale in everyday human life as well. For instance, if you have a nomad tent, it has a, has a hole for the smoke, and that is known as the sky door of the tent. And the fireplace in the tent is known as the earth door, and it connects the people who live there in the middle with heaven and with earth. The same thing in the house, you have a ladder tool to the rooftop, and that's known as the sky ladder. And on the rooftop, you would normally have a small shrine, and people would make smoke offerings. So that connects you with heaven, with the gods. <coughs> and so we can see that many rituals are related to establishing a connection between the human world, where we are, and with the gods, with the spirits above, and the spirits below. Now, um, in Tibetan religion, be it Buddhism or Bern, or just ritual, everyday practice, we find many symbols that are related to this verticality and centrality uh, connecting us with the different worlds. And symbols of that are, for instance, the flag pole that you have in front of any Tibetan temple. You can see it as a kind of axis, if you want. Or piles of stones on a mountain pass that imitate the mountain. And mountains are also connections between our world and heaven. Or smoke offerings, where the Tibetans burn juniper, juniper twigs, and the smoke rises to the sky. And it's again another link with the gods. Or the Tibetan prayer flag which are also meant as a connection between our world and the third world and the gods. Uh, so we can see there are many practices and many symbols that are somehow related to this larger underlying worldview. Um, why did I talk about centrality before? Because I think it's important to keep in mind that centers the center is not something given. The center is something that we establish. It's something that humans define. And basically, for every community, the center of the world is where they live. And, uh, or the mountain of the day worship. So in that sense, we have to keep in mind that has many centers. It has many 
ritual centers or religious centers, mountain gods and their surrounding territories, or the communities and the world around them. Mountain gods, as I said, are praised, they're worshipped with gifts. Um, in the case of Buddhist mountains, we have pilgrimage, of course, which is very important in Tibet. Tibetans walk enormous distances on their pilgrimages and they certainly undulate the mountains. Um, and the world of the mountain gods can be seen as a mirror of the human social world or political world because the mountain god is treated as a king. He typically has a whole, you know, the whole network that a king would have. So normally there's a queen. The queen is very often a lake. Lakes are typically female. Mountains are typically male. Um, there could also be other mountains nearby that are regarded as ministers or as rivals. So you can see that the whole political world is mapped to the Tibetan landscape. And all of that, I would say, is part of this nameless religion or, if you want, pan-Himalayan or Tibetan worldview. Now, when Buddhism came to the Tibetan plateau in the 7th century, it somehow had to relate to these ideas that were already there. And Buddhism has always been very flexible in adapting to the different countries in Asia. So you're going to find very different forms if you think of places like Thailand or China or Japan or Tibet. Buddhism always looks very different. And that is quite in line with Buddhism itself, where the Buddha is reported to say that what matters is the meaning, it's not the words. And in the early Buddhist canon, you can already read that the Buddha said, you should, for instance, translate what I say. It shouldn't, it shouldn't always be in my language. What matters is the meaning and that people can understand it. And therefore, it was easy to adapt to different environments. And it was not perceived as being against the Buddhist doctrine. Therefore, in Tibet, Tibetan mountain worship was integrated into Buddhism. And the mountain gods became part of the Tibetan Buddhist pantheon. We have many stories about that. We have stories about yogis, about <coughs> masters who encounter these mountain deities in Tibet. And very often there is a story about conflict. The mountain deity is not happy about Buddhism coming there and needs to be convinced or sometimes also subdued. And so we, we have many stories that mirror a certain conflict or violence even on the side of Buddhism. Um, and in the end, the mountain deity is usually either subdued or convinced and becomes a protector of the Buddhist doctrine in Tibet. And so that would serve as a background. And I would like to give you three examples where we can see how legends <coughs> the coming of Buddhism to Tibet and how it interacts with the mountains. So our first example is set in the time of King Songtsengampo. King Songtsengampo is the first Buddhist king of Tibet. During his time, Buddhism was introduced in the 7th century. And as it was usual in his time, he forged alliances through marriage. So he had several Tibetan wives from Tibetan noble families and clans to secure their support. But also, he married one Nepalese wife and one Chinese wife. You always read as a princess 
uh, you don't have to take a true literally, but uh, a lady from the Chinese nobility. And she came to Tibet in 641, and is known as Wang Chen Now, you can see something up in the middle, and you can see it's right. And I don't know whether it's obvious or not, but this is the Nepalese queen, and this is the Chinese queen, Wang Chen Wen Jingguangzhu was sent from the Chinese court and arrived in Tibet in 641. And before leaving China, we read in the Tibetan sources that she requested from her father a divination scroll. And the Tibetan text describes it as the striped scroll of trigrams in 34 sections. She then travels to Tibet with a famous statue of the Buddha known as the Zhou, the Lord. And this Buddha statue is now as housed in the Jokhang Temple in Lhasa. That's where the name Jokhang Temple in Lhasa comes from. In Lhasa, the wheels of the chariot carrying the Jogo statue get stuck. The Chinese princess lays out her trigrams and decides that Tibet is like a demoness fallen on her back. And that's what the text said. And now we can have a look what she looks like. That's the demoness on her back. And so basically the idea is that the whole Tibetan plateau, the whole landscape of Tibet, is this huge body of the demons. And she's opposed to the introduction of Buddhism and wriggling her legs and obstructing Buddhism. The Chinese princess recognized that the plain of milk, it's called in the Lhasa Valley, is the heart of the demons. And the lake of milk is the heart blood of her. Three peaks are rising from the plane, two are her breasts, one is the vein of her life force, and the conjunction of these items explain the evil behavior of the Tibetans. So from the Chinese point of view, the Tibetans are perceived as very rough and impolite and real warriors, but not very civilized. Wenjing Kongshu sees that if the temple is built on the heart of the demoness, Tibet's natural good qualities will flourish, and she tells her husband, Song Zingambo, to build a temple on her heart. And you can see her heart is here. <coughs> the Nepalese wife becomes jealous and she decides to build temples herself. <laughs> she tries to construct 108 temples across the Tibetan plateau, but whatever she builds during the day is destroyed at night. So the demoness is not happy. Then the king is involved and the king throws his ring and says wherever this ring were dropped, that's where we have to build the first temple. And of course this ring drops in the milk of lake, which is the heartland of the demoness, and confirms therefore what the Chinese princess had said. Then something Uncle sees that in order to complete the whole project, he also needs to fix not just the heart, but also the arms and legs of the demoness. Because he sees in a vision that she's lashing out with her arms and legs and obstructs the introduction of Buddhism. Therefore, he decides to build temples, first of all, the important one on her heart, but then also on her shoulders, on her hips, on her elbows, on her knees, and on her hands and on her feet. So you can imagine these temples as arranged in concentric squares around the center, around the heart. 
the heart is in Lhasa, and the temple on the heart of the demon is, is the Jokhang temple. And you can have a look at that now. So that will be part of the trip, of course, that you visit the Jokhang temple that is on the heart of the demon. If you are in the temple nowadays, you will be told that you can even still hear that there is a lake underneath, because there is a big rock and it has a hole. And if you put your ear to the rock, you can still hear the water of the lake. <coughs> so, that's the heart blood of the demoness. In addition to the temples that, so to speak, nail her down, the demoness, um, the Chinese princes also built certain other structures in the Lhasa Valley, such as stupas that were meant to counteract or balance negative influences. And so the whole Lhasa Valley becomes something like a sacred Buddhist mandala, and the opposing forces are appeased and put in things introduced. As you can imagine, a story like that has found many interpreters. And um, so there are, there are people who have read it as a kind of psych, psych, psychoanalytical story, or you can read it in a feminist way. You can say it's male Buddhism, the institutionalized male Buddhism, suppressing the female in Tibet. Or you can say it is Buddhism suppressing the pre-Buddhist religion. But then I think none of these interpretations really works very smoothly. Because if you think about it, this interpretation doesn't quite work. I mean, at least it's a woman introducing this whole notion of introducing Buddhism, pinning, pinning the female down. So it's not really the male pinning down the female. And also, that it is Buddhism suppressing pre-Buddhist religion doesn't quite work because the temples were not really built on pre-Buddhist religious sites. So in the end, I think nowadays colleagues tend to say, Maybe it's really just exactly what the story says, that we have a Chinese princess coming with her art of divination and geomancy, with her charts, something similar to Feng Shui in China, and she just gives her recommendations how to relate to the landscape. So, um, Buddhism is introduced in the 7th century. Um, we can then see that Buddhism expands rather slowly. Buddhism was favored by the court in Tibet and supported, um, but it was not, in the first century, not really widespread in the population. The population was still mainly vocal. The first monastery of Tibet is the monastery of Samye, which is in the Tsangpo Valley. This is the Tsangpo River in Tibet. And this is the monastery of Samye, where the first monks were ordained. <coughs> Sorry. That happened in the late 8th century. And the Tibetan Empire during this period expanded very far into Central Asia. Uh, so the Tibetans even conquered the Chinese capital of Chang'an for a while. Um, but uh, the main thing is they, they had Dunhuang under their control for a while. Dunhuang is a very important city on the Silk Roads. Uh, all the trade between the West and China had to come through Dunhuang, and so that was an important <coughs> point to hold. Tibet is headed for about 80 years of the history. Then, in the 9th century, the Tibetan Empire collapsed, and that <coughs> um, also meant a decline from Buddhism, because Buddhism relied on royal patronage 
Without a centralized state, there was no support for Buddhism in Tibet at the time, and therefore there was a decline. And then there was a big revival of Buddhism from the 11th and 12th century onwards, and that's when it really takes off and becomes very popular and finally becomes the dominant religion of Tibet. And we have seen in this early story of the demoness how in the early times Buddhism was really perceived as something uh, it wasn't easy to <coughs> the, the local spirits were antagonistic. And we will now have a look at two more examples, and they are from the 11th century, both of them. And we will see that at that time, it seems that the introduction of Buddhism is much more smooth, friendly, and peaceful, uh, which may narrow the fact that by that time, Buddhism had become more popular and more widespread and so there was less of a conflict. Um, so, the first of these examples, 11th century examples, is taken from a biography of a Tibetan tantric master called Ralnodzawa. And Ralnodzawa had been in Nepal, he had studied certain tantric rituals, uh, rituals of Vajrayana, and then he comes back to Tibet, and his biography tells us about an encounter with one of the important mountain gods of central Tibet, who is called, the long name is Nenchen Tanga, you could say the short name is simply Tanga, the, the lord of the plains, and this is what he looks like, that's what Nenchen Tanga looks like. Uh, so, very attractive mountain range, not too far from Lhasa, maybe a day's journey from Lhasa. And as I said before, oh yeah, this is what he looks like. <laughs> so you can see the mountain deities are seen as warriors, as kings on a horse with an armor and helmet and spear in his hand, and boots. And um, here you can see again the mountain range mentioned Tamla from the other side. And now you also see his wife, and his wife is the Namso Lake. As I said before, the queens, the wives of mountain deities, are usually lakes. So this is a very famous pilgrimage site in central Tibet. <coughs> you can get a whole pilgrimage circuit around the lake. So, um, <coughs> Granatama comes back from Nepal and has an encounter with a mountain god, Nenchen Tanga. And now I read from the biography. When Ralotsawa reached the region of the snow mountain Tanga, the Nenchen Tanga came in person to welcome him, accompanied by his retinue. He said, may I invite you to my palace? Ralotsawa accepted. The Tanga guided him, and in a single instance, they had reached the foot of the mountain. In the mountain, there was one single door. They entered, and inside of the mountain, there was a hall with many staircases. They went up, and there was a palace of white crystal with three peaks that had glimmering turrets made of the five kinds of jewels, <coughs> which had golden balconies and roofs. At its foot, a lake of nectar was curling. On the sides, there was a play of five colored rainbow lights, and from above, a light drizzle. A light drizzle is something very good in Tibet. So it was surrounded by a flower garden. 
the Tongla invited him to this palace, which was beyond imagination in its dimensions and design. He seated him on a throne made of jewels, offered him delicious food and drink, and asked him for instruction. Rainotsawa stayed there for three days and instructed the Tongla in the profound cycle of Vajra Bhairava, the Buddhist deity he had been studying. And then we have a long dialogue, many pages of dialogue about religion and religious practice. And <coughs> so there are a couple of things that I find interesting about this little episode, because first of all, um, we can see that the mountain goes, is the mountain, so this is a god, but at the same time, he can also move. And as we've seen before, he also looks like this. He's on a horse, he can ride, and he can come to greet the Buddhist master. And in that case, the mountain itself becomes more like a palace, and the Buddhist master can enter. And they can have conversation there. So there is a certain ambivalence of what the mountain world actually is. It's where the mountain and it's an independent power or spirit that can move. The other thing that is very typical of Tibet is the idea of this crystal palace that the Buddhist master can see. If we go there, we can't. Um, in Buddhism, it's a very common notion that what we perceive, how, how we perceive the world, is related to our own abilities of perception. So, if we have a pure vision of the world, we can see a crystal palace, we can see a mountain wall, no problem. But if we are ordinary human beings, we can't, and we will just see this beautiful snow mountain. And that's a very, very typical idea. And finally, what I found interesting is that, in this case, the encounter is very peaceful and respectful. And it seems as if the mountain god is already converted, he already is a Buddhist. And therefore he comes to meet the Buddhist master and receive instructions. And that's very different from the story before, where we had the demoness that was very unhappy about the introduction of Buddhism and needed to be subdued. So I think this mirrors that Buddhism at that time is already much more well-established and accepted in Tibet. Then, finally, last example. Uh, the last example is also from Central Tibet, and it is the Monastery of Reting. Reting is maybe 120 kilometers from Lhasa, further north. So again, it would take about a day to get there by car. Um, and it is the first monastery of the Kadampa school of Tibetan Buddhism. The Kadampas later were absorbed into the Gelugpa, the Yellow Hats. And that's the school to which the Dalai Lama, for instance, belongs. So it's a very important, powerful, big tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And Britain Monastery is their first monastic foundation. The monastery was founded in the 11th century, in 1056-57, by someone called Jongtenpa. Um, you can see Jongtenpa here. The interesting thing about it, he's not wearing monastic robes, if you look. So he's not a monk, he's a lay person. But nevertheless, he founded this monastery and he founded the Kadapa school of Tibetan Buddhism, um, probably because he was considered to be the most important disciple of the Indian Buddhist master Atisha, who is a very important authoritative figure in Tibetan Buddhism, and he, as the main disciple, had the authority to start a new tradition. 
So as the first one of the Kadampas, the Kadampas school, writing has received considerable attention in Tibetan Buddhist literature. And I'm going to read a passage from a biography of John Tenpa, the founder of the Kadampas. And um, the story goes that after the Indian teacher Atisha had died in Tibet, he went to Tibet and visited Tibet, stayed there for 12 years, then passed away in central Tibet. And then John Tenpa received an invitation from a patron to found a monastery in the patron's home region. And so he went to the Redding Valley. And now, it gets interesting, the biography describes how John Ten comes to the Redding Valley and he examines the valley itself and the landscape in particular to see whether it is a suitable place. And again, we find ideas of Tibetan geography, the meaning of the land as a kind of special time for the place where this monastery is going to be founded. And now I'm going to read. John Tenpa saw the ground of this solitary place written and understood that the ground had good qualities. Mountain and valley were good to visit. The mountain at the back, with a peak of white felt, abounded in brightness and was high, like a king wearing a turban. This is the mountain at the back of the monastery. I must apologize, it does not have a white peak of felt, <laughs> because I took this photograph in September. Normally, the would have snow on the top, and then the story makes much more sense. So, uh, but I can show you what he would normally look like. So this is uh, what this mountain is considered to look like as a mountain deity. And then you can see he's indeed wearing a white turban on his head. And the white headdress is typical for the old Tibetan kings, like what they used to wear. So again, it shows the mountain as a king. His retinue are, in the northeast, the peak, peak of the tiger mountain, like the king's general, marching to battle. And if you go there and ask, they would call it a black mountain. And they say, yeah, you can see the helmet up there. That's the general of the king. In the southeast, there is a round mountain, like a householder with a full treasury. It is there, I can promise, but I didn't bring the photograph. In the south, there is a mountain like a queen wearing ornaments and sitting cross-legged. I don't know if you can see the queen sitting cross-legged. Um, in the southwest, a mountain with a golden meadow looking like an elephant with its trunk stretched out. I asked people about it and they pointed at the mountain and they said, yes, of course it's there. I, I confess I couldn't quite see the elephant, but it is there. In the west there is a solitary boulder like a heap of precious stones. Um, no, you can see the heap of precious stones up there, got on the ridge. Um, in the northwestern mountain, like a saddle on a horse, in the, um, in the north, there is a boulder like a diamond. In front, there was a plane of rocks, like a wheel with eight stumps. The left in front was like a twirling swastika. The swastika is the religious symbol of, of India and, and the Indian countries. And I thought, how does that work, the swastika? But they said, yes, of course, it's there, but you see the shape. Um, a golden and a turquoise juniper as big as a goat and a sheep were like the pillars of sky and earth. 
there were 108 springs, and they say nowadays only one of them is left. So this is one of the holy springs. And because the whole valley broadened from the east to the west, and there's six side valleys, the ground was like an eight petal of lotus, and the sky like a wheel with eight spokes. And that stands for the wheel of the Buddhist Dharma, which also has eight spokes. The Juniper Forest was full of auspicious signs. At that time, there were only the golden and the turquoise juniper, but later there sprouted some junipers at a place where Geshe Gomtenpa had cut his hair off. Then gradually the tree spread, and nowadays there is the golden rooftop of the temple with two pillars in the middle of the juniper forest, like the tail of a peacock that is adorned with golden tips. For this reason, it is said that the junipers of Britain are the hair of Geshe Gomtenpa, and to cut them off means to cut off his hair, and they are held in high esteem. All kinds of birds make their voices heard, as if they would admonish people to lead a virtuous life. Deer and other animals live there without fear, it is said. And that can confirm that there is a, there is a stag in the forest, and he's absolutely fierce. Then the biography goes on with further descriptions of the auspicious features, so it's a much longer passage. Uh, John Tenpah also has auspicious dreams in the night and decides, therefore, that this is the best place to found his monastery and to establish the Kadampa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. So, what's going on here? We have this long list of items, and it is obvious that these items have an auspicious meaning, and therefore it is a kind of sacred landscape. Um, at the same time, if we look a bit more closely, we see that these items come from the Indian tradition, in this case, where they are not only related to monasticism and religion, but also to kingship, as we will see in a second. Um, so according to the Indian tradition, in every world period there is something they call the Chakravarti, a universal monarch. And he is a monarch who will spread good government, peace, and religion on earth. Um, and he has certain attributes. And his attributes are a wheel that symbolizes his power, a general, a treasurer, a queen, an elephant, a horse, and a wish-fulfilling jewel. And that was sound familiar after the list that we have just heard in the biography. So um, this idea of the universal ruler and his attributes was also combined with traditional Buddhist cosmology. And in traditional Buddhist Indian cosmology, you have the idea that there is a central mountain in the, in the cosmos, Mount Meru, and it is surrounded by mountain ranges and water, and here is a big outer ocean, and this is the southern continent of Jambudvipa, where we live, so that's where we are. And in any case, the mountain is in the middle. Then the Tibetans have also shown this cosmos when you see it from, from above, and you look from the top, and this is the central mountain of the cosmos. Here you have the ocean around the mountain. I'll jump three far in this case it's here. And around the central mountain, the Tibetans have written eight items that stand again for perfect, peaceful rule and governance. And these items are exactly the same that belong to the universal monarch, 
and that have been described for the retin valley. So, now we can see that the retin valley is understood as a cosmos in itself, as a kind of perfect world, perfect, peaceful, wonder-like you want. And we can compare that. Um, this is the cosmos. Not nearly in the middle. It should be square, actually, really. Um, in any case, so we have the, the arrangement <coughs> as it is here in this Tibet blockland. And here we have Retin Monastery with a river and the mountain at the back with the king and the general, the treasure, the queen, elephant, the jewels, and the horse, etc. So that's Retin in the Retin Valley. And you see that it more or less is the same, but not quite. And also you see that the orientation is different. Here, west is at the top, and there, north is at the top. So they have to twist the whole thing in order to make it work. And I think that shows that they really tried not to do it mechanically, but really to see these items in the landscape, to properly identify them. And so they have taken this very seriously. One thing that I found remarkable is that when you are there, there is only one point from which you can actually see all these things at the same time. And that point is the terrace in front of the main temple in Britain. So you really have to step right in front of the monastery. And that's when you have suddenly the sole view and you can see all the items around you. And it feels like being at the center of a mandala and really seeing all these colony points. Of course, if you start to, you know, if you take a compass and you start to measure, then it's much less geometrical. The real landscape isn't, isn't that geometrical, but it feels geometrical when you stand there. So it's felt, let's say, felt geometry. And that's what matters, of course. So um, we see that what this narrative does is to place the monastery itself in the middle. So we could say, if we go back to the cosmos, what happens is that the monastery takes place at the center, where in cosmology you would have a big mountain. Or if you think of Tibetan mountain gods, uh, again, the mountain god would be the center, and it would be the ruler, the king, and everything else would be his territory. But we see that in Redding, what you have in the middle is the monastery, the monastic tradition, and that's what takes over. So this is the place of power, and all the other mountains are just attributes, and they are arranged around the mountain, and kind of enforce and secure the power of the monastic tradition. So I think that's a very, very interesting and powerful image for the self-understanding of the Buddhists, and how they see their tradition embedded into the Tibetan landscape. Now, of course, the story goes on. This is the foundation of writing, 11th century, and a lot has happened since then. So first of all, we have slightly later texts that begin to describe writing on a much more sublime level, we could say. So, we talked about, about uh, already about pure vision, about different ways of perceiving the world, and in slightly later texts, in the Kadam Lekdom, for instance, the book of the Kadam tradition, um, there is an episode where John Tintar receives a prophecy from his Indian teacher Atisha, 
And this prophecy describes written again, and it describes it again in an ivory place. It addresses all these items that we already know. And then it goes on and it says, um, Reading is really, in reality, the crystal palace of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. The Bodhisattva in Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism is a, a spiritual being that has reached enlightenment but is consciously reborn in order to help all living beings. So it's the palace of the Bodhisattva. He resides there and what you see as trees in Reading are really lotus flowers in reality. And then it goes on, it describes certain colors to these lotus flowers. And uh, so each quarter, each direction has its own color. And it all becomes very much like a very idealized description of a mandala. So you always have white in the east, gold in the south, copper in the west, turquoise in the north. And you have uh, a certain pattern, again, geometrical pattern of sacred springs. Um, and of course, these are all things that we, without perception, would not see. And therefore, I can only share it to you in a very abstract way. First of all, this is the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, who resides in this crystal palace in Beijing. Here you see that the monks making a sun mandala, which is considered to be a palace for the deity. The deity always resides in the middle. So there's and this is basically what, what in, on the level of pure vision, the retinal valley would look like. Um, and then at the end of this long, long, long passage with a long description, uh, you'll find the remark that all these things can only be seen by the gods. Among human beings, those with a pure character can see what we perceive as the real landscape. The valley with the river, the juniper forest, and the mountains above the monastery. People with an impure character, the passage concludes, cannot see any of these things at all. They will never come to Reading. <laughs> so you can see again we have this, this uh, notion that our perception determines what we see around us. And then finally, if we move to very recent times in Reading, um, we will see that, again, the valley nowadays is interpreted in new ways. Um, I went there several times. The last time that I was in Reading was 2007. And uh, so I, I asked people about the convention, how they nowadays perceive the place. And, um, Pilgrims normally go to the temple when they come. They have monks who guide them around and who explain the items in the landscape. And um, they also normally visit the incarnate Nama of Ritting. So what they would do, they go to the temple and after that, they go for a, on the pilgrimage circuit around the juniper forest. And here you can see uh, some of the old juniper trees. They are probably really from the foundation period, approximately. I've asked uh, biologists who said that yeah, it's very possible that they are about 1,000 years old. And um, then you would reach a point where they say the previous Punchin Lama, an important Lama in Tibet, saw had a vision of 21 goddesses, Tara, 
um, you get to a place where there's a little shrine, and they say, oh, this is where John Pinkard, the founder, knelt down to pray, and you can still see the imprints of his knees. <laughs> and so with pilgrims too, they kneel down in the same place to absorb the blessing. And then you come to a place where they say, oh, another important teacher pressed his thumb into the rock and left an imprint of his finger. And again, people will touch it for blessing. And um, yeah, then they also go to see the incarnate Lama, who must now rather be like a teenager. He must be about 17, I think. Uh, but he was, of course, much younger then. And he is, I mean, he is very well guarded because he is a very high-ranking lama. Many lamas have fled from Tibet to India, and so they're very keen to to keep him where he is. And as if you go as a Westerner, when we went at least, we had to leave our passports at the entrance so that we couldn't run away, couldn't, couldn't run away with him. Uh, and then we had a very formal audience with him. Uh, with lots of security in the background, so uh, it's not an easy situation for this boy. Also, I mean, he's also important because he could potentially play a role in identifying the next rebirth of the Dalai Lama when the Dalai Lama died. And that's, of course, a very political issue within China, um, identifying the next Dalai Lama. And our current Dalai Lama has already made a very clear statement that if the political situation does not change, you won't be reborn in China, just to make that very clear. <laughs> but we will have to see, of course, what happens. Um, in any case, so that's what a normal pilgrim nowadays would do. And in addition to the traditional stories that you are familiar with, the visitor will also hear certain modern stories, and many of them concern the juniper trees around the monastery. One tree, people say, tried to protect the monastery when Mao Zedong's red guards fired at the buildings. And they say, here you can see the tree is leaning over to protect the monastery. There is another tree where the Chinese soldiers came and wanted to cut it down. And when they started, a snake came out of the ground, and they got scared and ran away. And for Tibetans, that's a very clear sign. A snake that comes out of the ground is a snake spirit, a naga spirit. And uh, so that's again proof that the territory protected the monastery. Um, and you can see this tree. I mean, the trunk is really split. And they say, yeah, that's where they started to cut it down. Obviously, it has been split for a very long time, but it doesn't matter. Um, <coughs> has, uh, in the 20th century, had a very difficult time. Several, uh, there have been several conflicts. The first one was uh, related to the written Rinpoche himself in the 1940s, when the Dalai Lama was still in Tibet, and there was a kind of palace intrigue, and uh, written Rinpoche died, that written Rinpoche died under very clear circumstances, and written monastery was attacked by Lhasa troops. Then later, of course, after the Chinese annexation of Tibet, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, Retin Monastery was, was basically completely destroyed. I mean, the, the palace of the Retin Monastery is completely gone. There is nothing left. Parts of the temple are still there, but the statues were taken away to Beijing for a while. Um, 
and the monastery nowadays is in a, is in a period of revival. <coughs> from the, after the Cultural Revolution in China, from the 1980s onwards, there was a permission to rebuild monasteries in Tibet. And so they started reconstructing, restoring, writing from 1984 onwards. And in 1987, the most sacred image was installed in the temple again. And the writing Rinpoche at that time must have been a very charismatic and dynamic person and was able to revive many of your traditions. <coughs> when I went to visit, there was a group of 11 highly educated, well-trained scholars who were in charge of the education and that also compiled a kind of Reader's Digest, a little textbook, with excerpts from all the ancient biographies and old texts related to the Britain and its history. And so nowadays, every monk in the monastery knows them and can recite some of the verses related to the sacred landscape. So we could say it's, it's a kind of happy ending nowadays. Um, at the same time, of course, what remains is the question of how the destruction and desecration have affected the monastery and its inhabitants. In the modern legends about the trees, there are always Chinese soldiers responsible for destruction and the spirits of, of writing protect the monastery. But isn't that also problematic? I mean, isn't, so how can it happen that a place with all these powers of the land can be invaded and can be destroyed? And so I think we could perhaps say that the modern pilgrimage to writing is an attempt to heal a wound and the monks who guide the visitors nowadays resort to early traditions because that's safe to talk about early history, but they also have modern stories that kind of reaffirm that writing has not lost its special powers. So, these were my three examples and I think what we have seen is how Buddhism and indigenous beliefs in sacred landscapes and mountain gods how that has a very dynamic relationship. And then in the early period, it's much more antagonistic. In later times, um, there is much more of a harmony between the powers of the land and Tibetan Buddhism. And that's really all I wanted to tell you about. So thank you very much.